You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 160. We did it, guys. 160. There it is. 160. We finally got to a number evenly divisible by two. We can pack it up. We're done. 160 episodes in. All right. Bye. Uh, these and other Mathematician uh, shortcuts for your life uh, you know, are available to you if you subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to find your podcast apps or, or your podcast. We're probably there to uh, leave us a review if you can. We super appreciate it. All right. And visit us at codingbox.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, uh, and other things like links. Oh, and uh, your feedback, questions, and rants can be sent to comments at codingbox.net or Twitter. We'll get to getting this right one day. You can follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head to www.CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I am Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw, www. Dub dub. Dub This episode is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring and analytics platform for end-to-end visibility into the performance of your entire containerized environment. And Linode, simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. And Educative.io, learn in-demand tech skills without scrubbing through videos, whether you're just beginning your developer career preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. All right. And so today we're going to be talking about data replication, which... Data or data? Um, well, it depends. We'll get to that coming up. What? what? <laughs> I think it's data replication. Um, that's Fight different. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you say database or database? I think I'll switch it up. No. All right. Sorry. Well, whatever rhymes the best... All right, I'm in slower quick. So, so before we get into how to um, pronounce data, uh, as we like to do, we like to thank those who have left us reviews. So, with that, uh, I think I think Outlaw, you've got to do this because there's only a couple here. So that's oh, this fine, is you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, this butchering of your name is brought to you by Alan. So thank him. Uh, you know, hit him up for any rants on uh, Slack at Alan. So from Audible, we have Ash Fish, an anonymous user, a.k.a. Andreas. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for leaving those just excellent, excellent reads. All right. Well, uh, on with the show then. And uh, got to start off with a quote. This was a quote that was in the book that was awesome. So I just had to kind of throw it in there. And it was specifically about this chapter. <clears throat> And this is from Douglas Adams, uh, author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, and a bunch of other things. The major difference between a thing that might go wrong and a thing that cannot possibly go wrong is that when a thing that cannot possibly go wrong goes wrong, it usually turns out to be impossible to get at or repair. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> Dude, I loved that quote. I think I read it like 10 times because that was a whole lot of like back and forth on the wording. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But it's so true. I can't. It can't go wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, just gonna say. So, like British authors. Uh, I mean, they're just the funniest people in the world, right? So, yeah, I I approve of that. I, I like it. <laughs> and yeah, because when uh, something that's never supposed to break breaks, it's always terrible. And uh, that's why we have techniques for dealing with some of these problems, uh, like replication. And so, uh, oh, first, I guess you should say that we're continuing on with the chapter from. 
Designing Data Intensive Applications, which is a book that we talked about, did several episodes on. on. Now we're getting to the second chapter, uh, or second section rather, uh, which is talking all about data. Hey, wait, and, wait. Do you realize this is a very important milestone for our show? This is the only book that I think we've ever gone back to after uh, we were like, okay, I'm tired of doing this book for a while. <laughs> this maybe, is the sure. only one. Maybe for the for as long a period of time as it has been. Yeah, there have yeah, been not, ones where we've had like you know a couple episode gap, right? You know? Like a, like our our shopping spree. But or I think the last time we talked about um, designing data intensive applications, it it was uh, several episodes back. Yeah, you know, maybe even a year ago. Yeah, this, I would guess this is year. important. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, I, I picked up the book for some reason and had to look up something, and I was like, "Wait, we should we should get back to this." Actually, it is it is just over a year. April twelfth wow. was the last episode. Yeah, still one of my favorite books, by the way. Episode yeah, one thirty. That's had, so good. Uh, I had highlight, uh, highlighted highlight this book too, so like <laughs> going back and reading it. It's like kind of. I love highlighting books. I know that's like some people think that's awful, but I love it. Wait, a physical book with yeah. a highlighter? Yep. Interesting. Okay. That's why you buy the physical book is so that you can mark it up. Yep. I mean, just to like refresh some memories here on this book. Like I think collectively, like we all had positive opinions, like super positive opinions about this book. We really liked it. And if you haven't read this book, uh, you should definitely get the book because like right away, one of the awesome things about this book, just to refresh everybody's memory was, uh, it starts talking about like, hey, you know, like how could a database possibly work? And like, what might it possibly look like? And they start off, the author starts off with like, well, let's just write a script that like uh, logs some some output to a, you know, some input into a file. And we'll just keep adding, you know, concatenating. And oh, now we have read problems. Like how could we read that data from that same file? And oh, now we have concurrency issues. Like how can we deal with these concurrently? And like, uh, you know, it just... It's it just keeps on building from that simple idea of like writing a key value pair into a into a plain text file, and then you get into like awesome things like SS table tables and LSM trees and B trees and all kinds of really cool concepts. And so now we're going to dig into replication as it yeah, relates say, to uh, uh, database data systems. Like alternative titles for this book could be how to write a database or how every distributed application you ever heard of has been written, basically. Right. And uh, I mean, just even the terminology that they kind of talk about with, with different things, like you can kind of like look at like a, a Mongo and say, oh, that's probably why they call that. Or you look at a Postgres and like, well, that's probably why they call that that. And now like, um, you know, uh, things like even when technologies use words that are kind of similar, like shards versus partitions you can kind of like think about the chapter on sharding and partitioning and kind of think about the differences that in those kind of techniques and like the subtle subtleties between those and i don't know it's just interesting so um I hey like it. We, we didn't talk about this before do we want to do a uh, book giveaway on this oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so oh so snap it's been a minute for sure so if you leave a comment on episode 160 so that'll be codingblocks.net slash episode 160. Um, you'll be entered for a chance to win a copy of this fantastic book. All right. We're now rolling on. All right. Now we're ready to start the episode. <laughs> so, uh, we're talking today about replication in database systems. And uh, just to, to be very clear about um, kind of the definition of what we mean by replication, we're talking about keeping copies of the same data on multiple machines 
connected by a network. And spe- very specifically for this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about data that's small enough that it can fit on a single machine. So we're not talking about spreading out data over multiple machines because the data is too big. We're talking very specifically about uh, what it means to be able to fit that, basically the whole data set on several different machines. So each one can have the full data set available to it. And why would you even want to do that? And uh, one of the things I love about the book is it really kind of boils down questions like that and gives you really, really concise answers. And basically, there's three main reasons why people replicate data. Uh, one is to keep it close to where it's used. Like caching is a good example here. Um, maybe geographic data. Yeah, I was going to say geog- uh, geography would be a better. I don't know if I would call it caching as yeah, much as just sure. keeping it geographically close. So, like, think about, like, um, you know, one of your favorite websites that's, you know, around the globe, right? Like a a Stack Overflow or even a Google, right? Google.com, right? They would have um, instances that are closer to you so that you you can have quicker response times. Actually, yeah, I don't absolutely. know if Stack Overflow does. Do they? I think I uh, they remember definitely they had have a CDN as part of their... Yep. And you can kind of think of that as being, uh, uh, you know, uh, that's a content delivery network, which is basically a distributed cache, uh, which is a copy of data located all around the world in order to make loading it uh, faster for the people in those areas. So if you ever want to know how to build the next Fastly or uh, content delivery network, hey, it's a great book to read. Uh, Second reason is to increase availability, by which we mean one goes down, the other's still available. So your uh, application as a whole is still generally available. Uh, so everything about that one from like a purposes of like, you know, a primary and secondary copy of your database. Right. That's what yep. we mean by availability. And one case. goes down, you can still read. Right. Uh, so uh, third reason, the last reason is you can increase throughput by allowing more access to the data. Think about if you've got a database, you can only allow so many connections at once. If you need to allow more and more readers of that data, you need to add more notes or more replicas and that can vary by technology that you're using though because some technologies even though you have replicas you still only go through the primary for reads and writes like especially like older database technologies that would that would be true of and this is something i don't normally think of it's like if you imagine um having a database that's so small that you can fit it easily on multiple computers but just having so many readers of the database that you still need replicas just in case uh, you know, just because you can't handle the number of connections. If you have like a mobile game or something, it's really popular. I uh, mean, Stack Overflow doesn't do it that way, but they actually have a very similar use case because if you read some of their docs, they talk about like less than 5% of their traffic are writes. Like it's a very low percentage of it and they have a ton of reads. So if they had opted to go that route, they could have had a bunch of, you know, read-only replicas out there for, for pulling out questions and stuff. They didn't do it that way, but that that's a good example of where that might work out well. And uh, for data that doesn't change, uh, it's generally very easy. It's, um, it's, it's essentially trivial to copy data, data that never changes. So if you imagine like um, the 50 states in the U.S. or um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I can't think of anything that doesn't change because everything changes. But you can imagine, uh, you know, cases where you've got some sort of um, data set or look of values that just never change. And it's it's trivial. It's not even worth talking about. You literally just 
copy it over and then you've got a copy and you never have to worry about it. Everyone's happy. The problem is when you do have changes and how do you keep the data in sync between all of these different locations? And there's uh, only three popular algorithms. And what's funny about these algorithms is that they're old as the hills. Hey. Well, I wanted to just add one thing to that um, data that doesn't change. You know, it, it's easier if the data doesn't change because um, one of the things that they described in there was if you were to just do like a file system copy for it, that, yep. you know, Done. if it, if the, if it's not changing, then sure. And, that, and that's the way like the CDNs, you know, they can work like that, right? Because like um, they can just distribute a copy of the, of like an image out, you know, around the, around the globe across the, the CDN network. And, you know, it's the same image everywhere, as long as it's still, you know, hashes to the same, uh, you know, checksum, for example. But uh, in the case of like a database, you know, that's not necessarily going to work as well because, you know, the entire database not might not be changing and that entire database might be like really large. So that's where like you need to have uh, a more efficient way to do that. So this is where we get into the three popular algorithms. Well, you know, it's funny. And so I was going to say, I'm so old that when I went to school, uh, we had books. This is anyway, it's just paper. It's wood with uh, ink on it, uh, like from squids. And uh, in the math books, particularly, you would be able to open up like the first or last kind of cover uh, or a couple pages. And you would see these big charts that had things like uh, square root values or sine and cosine values for certain numbers, things like that. Uh, those are examples of things where logarithms. Yeah. You have these big tables that you can look at values because calculators weren't uh, as common back then. And uh, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're making it sound really ago. bad. Hold on. <laughs> no. Realizing. Calculators weren't available. To- Back in yeah. my day. So, yeah, it's kind of an example of data that doesn't change. And so it was really easy to copy this stuff around. I think, I don't know, I'm getting off on tangents here. I'm just seeing like books, we publish them and ship them out. This example of data doesn't change. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I think you get the point. (laughs) But uh, there are three popular algorithms for dealing with data that does change. And what's funny about these is the book mentions that uh, the algorithms and discussion papers and a lot of the thought that happened around uh, replication uh, is really old, like 1970s, and hasn't really changed much since then. Now, the practical application of these is still really tough. So there's a, a lot of things to kind of consider and mature and polish up and a lot of things that still go wrong even then. So there's not like clear-cut, easy, done. You just, you know, link to this dynamic library and now you're replicated. Uh, there's trade-offs to make and uh, we're still focusing on getting it right even though we've known about the techniques for many, many years. So can we just like talk about the elephant in the room here for a moment? Like what in the world was hap- going on in the seventies, man? Cause that's when C was created as well. Like, why is it like so many good things happened in the seventies and we're only just now like, you know, in you know the last couple decades, like, Oh, that's what those guys were getting at. Yeah. We should probably uh, take, we should probably like do more distributed data, uh, applications and, and come up with uh, ways to deal with that. Like that's, that's a pretty cool idea that they had back in the seventies, you know, <laughs> five decades ago. Right. Well, it's cause they weren't arguing about like uh, CSS and HTML or, you know, tabs or spaces or anything like they were just getting it done. Uh, so good. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the three popular algorithms that we mentioned uh, are single leader multi-leader and leaderless replication. And today we're going to be focusing on single leader 
and then uh, we'll be able to see how the kind of the principles and stuff that we talk about today can kind of uh, lead into those those other two. Okay, so speaking of distributed systems, it seems like uh, maybe Zoom is having some distributed problems tonight because uh, we just lost the call like midway through, and I've never seen Zoom like actually like completely crash in the middle of calls. So that was a first. So you know, kudos to Zoom for having gone this long without uh, you know that being a regular occurrence. So uh, I don't know, Jay Z, where were we at? We were talking about like the elephant in the room with you know all the cool things that were invented in the seventies. Yeah, I ended up down a weird rabbit hole, so it's kind of good that we uh, cut all that stuff. Oh, I'll, I'll be sure to edit it back in. Yeah, <laughs> 70s are pretty great, though, apparently, uh, and also pretty bad. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, I got some uh, vocabulary for you. So uh, we call the group of computers that make up a data system a cluster, cluster of computers. And each computer in that cluster, just generally speaking, we're going to call a node. And each node that has a copy of the database is a replica. That's weird because you said it was called a, a group of computers called a cluster, but I always heard it as like a three-syllable word, but you only said two. Uh, what, what do you mean, cluster? Say cluster is three-syllable word? It'll hit you. It'll come to you later. Really? Really, guys? Nothing. Why Why yeah, I have all these like... Puzzling looks on me. Come on. I, I can't say it on air. Oh, yeah. I got it. I got <laughs> it. Nope. Uh, <laughs> I got if you, it. If you understand what Alice is saying, you should leave a comment and uh, maybe want a book. No, no, no. Don't, don't, I don't want, don't say that. Don't leave our... that comment on there. Hey, but real quick. So you said single leader. Did we say multi leader and leaderless also? I didn't ever yeah. hear that part. Okay. It was probably when it was crashed. So the three yeah. popular algorithms we're talking about are single leader, multi leader, leaderless. Single leader is one we're focused on today. And then we're going to kind of roll the things that we've learned and talk about today into the other two. Okay, cool. All right. So now, now that we've back, backpedaled, now we can go, we can jump back forward into the future now. Yeah. Um, now that we have defined the replica and the cluster blank. Um, so we're good. Yep, and so that that's the the main vocabulary. And different systems will sometimes use these words interchangeably or to kind of mean different things. But just want to kind of lay those out as generic terms. So like if someone's talking about different systems and they talk about nodes in the system, then generally speaking, they're referring to uh, a computer in that cluster, which has multiple Google clusters. And and then Elastic in particular has like special definitions of what they call nodes, and they kind of like tacked on some additional meaning to them. But for the most part, those still operate uh, in practice as a node. And uh, yeah, so the important one to get here is that each node in this cluster that has a, a copy of the database is a replica. And we're going to say that word a lot today. Yes. Yep. So since every replica has a full copy of our database, our data set, then any changes need to be fully copied over to every single replica. And the most common approach to doing that is leader-based uh, replication. And two of the uh, algorithms that we mentioned are both involve leaders, so single leaders or multiple. And I think this is like probably pretty common, right? Like most people are probably already kind of familiar with this kind of scenario where you have like a primary database server and then a bunch of, uh, you know, secondary replica or, or, 
aka replica database servers. Yeah, one or more typically, right? I mean, depending on your environment. I mean, in some cases you might just have two, right? One for one for your main, one for a failover in case the other one blows up. Um, but if you're if you're worldwide distributed and all that kind of stuff, then you might you might have more so that you're you're sharing those those reads and stuff out across the planet. But but yeah, typically you'll at least hear, you know, the primary and failover. And so just knowing those the, the three popular algorithms, like uh, there's only one that I've ever heard of as being leaderless, and that's Cassandra, our friends over at uh, Datastax. That's the only database I've ever heard of, and that's the only context I've ever heard that the term leaderless for. Um, single leader and multi-leader, like I instantly think of like relational databases I've worked with. I've been in situations where I've had a primary and replicas, though you've mentioned before. And the older um, multi-leader kind of took me a minute. Um I know Kafka has some interesting things where like different uh, topics on partitions actually have different uh, primaries. And so I guess that would be a case where you have kind of multiple leaders per partition. But I wasn't really sure about that, but I, I will have to read up on it. I haven't got to that chapter yet. Yeah, we'll okay. get through there. Because I was like struggling, <laughs> which is embarrassing to say, uh, considering our love for Kafka. Because uh, – I was struggling to think of like a multi-leader example, but yeah, now you mentioned it, you're like totally right. Because with Kafka, you can have, you know, within a topic, you can split that topic up across multiple partitions and uh, each, there can be a leader for each one of those partitions across all of the brokers. So if you have like uh, three brokers and you have your partition is spread across uh, or your topic is spread across 10 or let's make it something evenly divisible by three then. So you have nine uh, partitions for that topic. Then each broker is going to be a leader for uh, three of the partitions for that topic. So, okay. Yep. That's a good example. Yeah, I think uh, uh, I'm not sure about this. I need to finish reading the chapter. Uh, Elastic, I know um, you can have multiple master nodes, which can act as leader, and you can even have uh, nodes that have the master role that basically end up having. Uh, be becoming leader. So I, don't, I would guess it's a multi-leader situation, but I haven't looked into that any further. Um, yeah, I know Mongo has primaries and replicas. I guess, uh, I mean, definitely getting ahead of ourselves here, but like a question, like, is that, is, is there a such thing as like multi-leader for like acid compliance type compliant type uh, systems? Right. Cause I don't know that Kafka counts as that. Does it? No, I don't think no. It Kafka is not. There's yeah, there's no, no transaction, right? So, right. yep. Oh, you know what though? Um, so we are going to be talking about transactions. Uh, and uh, that's actually that's coming up a little uh, a little bit ahead. But um, we, all the questions and all the things that we're talking about and wondering about, they're all going to be addressed by this amazing book. There we go. A little bit that's of foreshadowing right. right there. That's right. Uh, but for now, just to kind of get the ball rolling, we're talking about single leader replication, which is the one that I'm by far much more familiar with uh, and have seen in the wild. Uh, in this case, uh, one of the nodes is designated as the leader. All writes must go to that leader. You cannot write to any of the other places unless, yeah, unless it's the leader. And the leader writes the data locally. And then somehow it's got to get that data to its followers, either, either by publishing some sort of like replication log or um, change string. And we'll get into the kind of the details between those two. 
Uh, but somehow it's got to get those changes over to those, uh, those other replicas in order to keep it. And, and you, as you can imagine, there's going to be some latency there. It's going to be a period of time when those replicas don't have that data yet. So this is, a, this is an example of like what we've talked about. <clears throat> I want to say we even talked, I even like referenced it in the last episode, but like Postgres has this capability, for example, to where in a, uh, a multi, um, replica set up for Postgres, you have the one primary where all your writes are going to go through, but you can, you can um, distribute and parallelize your reads across all of the replicas in that uh, Postgres cluster. Right. Yep. And you know, what comes to mind too is, um, so when you write to Kafka, you can configure it, uh, your consumers to say that your consumer can not count that write as written until... Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. Producer. And there's three choices. One is as soon as I send it and the leader that I'm writing to acknowledge it. says acknowledge it, then I consider myself done. Or you can say, no, I want that leader to confirm to me that at least one replica has the change. Or you can say, I want that leader to confirm to me that every single replica has gotten that change. And that's like the safest and also the slowest. Also leads you to the most like most error prone. Yeah. Because what, what, if there's what, any issue available. with one of the, with one of those uh, replicas, then your write fails completely. But I thought there was also a fourth option though, where like you could just fire and forget. Like, I don't even care if you acknowledge it here. So yeah, both of you guys are jumping ahead to the next section. Yeah. Um, and all that. Yeah. That's but, yeah. what we do. That's what we do. Yeah. Alan, why you try Why you, why you all up in my game? This is what that's I, right. this is how I roll. We're going to get there. We're going to be like, oh, yeah, we already covered that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's how we roll. Yep. That's why we spend so much time on the beginning. Don't shame me. Don't, that's the way. If I'll, I'll do the show however I want to do the show. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, yeah, both of you, I was like, yeah, they're both they're both jumping into the next section. So I, yeah. we, we should hurry up and get there because I think what you guys were saying stuff. was pretty now, good. we already covered it. Right. Yeah. Um. So, so what he said is when, when these changes go out, right, like they get streamed, the followers have to basically take those log entries and apply them in the same order. Um, there, there's multiple ways of doing this. Um, and then, like you said, in some situations, you can have the read set up to be able to do it for multiple replicas. The writes still have to go to the primary. And yeah, there's a ton of databases that support them, right? Postgres, Mongo, there's uh, SQL Server has log shipping. Like there's all kinds of things like that, right? So now this is where we get into exactly what they were just talking about, which is the sync versus async. Um, and it, it, it actually can get a little bit more complex than even what you guys were just saying a second ago, right? Like there's the one where it's fire and forget, you know, I sent a message, just assume it, it, it worked, right? So that's your quickest, lowest latency. There's the, the synchronous across everything, which like outlaw was saying is, is slower it's more thorough, but it could also be more failure prone or error prone. There's also a mixture to where you can <clears throat> do something similar. I think to what Jay Z might have said, or maybe it was you, Outlaw, to where you can have some of them set up to be synchronous so that you write to the primary, it has to write to at least two more secondaries, and then the rest of them can be async. Oh, right. So that was different though. <clears throat> yeah. So, so what Jay-Z was referring to is like from Kafka specifically as a producer, um, your, your Kafka producer application can like, uh, write the data to the broker and it can, and as part of that 
right. It can say, Hey, I want to verify that you wrote it to at least the leader in you know, right. a replica. Um, what you're talking about though, is that some systems from, from the, the book talked about how some systems can be configured in a, uh, hybrid kind of mode, like what you're describing, where the right has to be written to not only the leader, but also a replica as well as part, at least one replica as part of it. And, and they called that like semi, I think it was called semi synchronous, um, for, for that type of scenario. But then there could be other replicas that are part of that same cluster and they would get that, um, right done asynchronously later. Right. So you're not having to wait for everything to get it, but you're guaranteed you're at least in a high availability scenario. Right. And if you do use Kafka, uh, you know, since, since, you know, we're hitting on, uh, beating up on Kafka for a moment, even though it does count as the, like the, the multi-leader scenario, um, it, if you look at your topics, if you describe your topics, using the Kafka, the the command line tools that they have for it, the little shell scripts they have for it, you can actually see there'll be like a uh, a column called ISR. And that is the in-sync replicas. And so for each individual partition of a, of a given topic, you can see which replicas are in sync with the leader. And there'll also be another column that will show you like who is the leader, what broker is the leader for that partition. And um, then you can also see like all the other replicas for it as well. And you can see like who's in sync and who's not. And if you really want to have some fun with Kafka and you really start to put it through the paces on some heavy, heavy load, like stress test loads, which Kafka has some built in scripts for this. Then if you, during that heavy load, if you go back and you describe those topics to see that you'll see that in sync replica column, get all out of whack where like only the leader will show up in that column for the, for a given partition and the, and the replicas don't, or, you know, depending on like how heavy the f- workflow is at that time, like maybe you'll see some topic or some partitions that are, you know, uh, might have like in my previous example, I, I said three brokers, I think. So maybe you see like two of the three brokers on some and another partition, you see all three and on one partition, you only see one, but like, you know, you, you can actually see Kafka, uh, you know, you can see this, this synchronization in action in a way through the Kafka uh, shell scripts that they provide, you know, to, to describe the topics as, as you're doing that heavy load. So here's one interesting thing though, while piggybacking on, on Kafka here, Kafka is actually a much simpler use case than something like a database, right? So, so when you think about the fact that like what outlaw just said, where you can see the replicas on Kafka, get out of sync. Just imagine when you've got something like a database, that's writing, you know, 20 records in a transaction. And now that thing needs to replicate out against 20 different replicas, right? Like it's one thing to write records from a queue across multiple things. But now when you're, when you start talking about synchronizing records with IDs and all kinds of other stuff, like things get hairy, right? And it was, it's super interesting too, from the database perspective, like one of the things that I had never um, considered as part of that replication strategy, uh, we're, we're definitely, we've already talked in the past about write ahead logs, which uh, this particular chapter, they, they said like, I believe that that was like the, the majority of them, especially for like uh, Postgres and Oracle, like write ahead logs were the big way they did. But one of the, one of the, 
um, strategies that was described was that, you know, I, I forget what they called it, but I'm going to call it like a replay for lack of a better, a better example. So like you, you call an insert statement and to insert some piece of data and that exact same statement is re-executed on each of the replicas. Well, that sounds harmless enough unless, you know, you're really into data and then you might be like, wait a minute. Uh, what if I have like an auto incrementing ID, like that those need to be in sync, but also worse. What if you have like a date kind of column and that, uh, is it, you know, defaults has a default constraint on it to automatically, you know, insert now, which if the replica inserts it five minutes later, if it replays that five minutes later, then it's going to have a different timestamp on it. So like it's, it is a, possible strategy that might be used in some places. I think they described that like that was how the original MySQL used to work. But, um, you know, for the, you know, serious database systems, that's not, that's not going to cut it. It's not going to be good enough. Yeah. And, and also to further that, when he's talking about the replay thing, he's talking about replaying the actual SQL statement that ran. Right. So if you did, you know, insert into users, in your primary. And like he said, that the insert statement had a get date function in it, <clears throat> which if you listen to our dating is hard episode, you know, you shouldn't use get date in SQL server. But if, if you, you did, did, if you did on that it's replica, easy. do you run the same insert with that get date function? Or do you try and get the date that was <laughs> inserted on the primary and carry that same date over to your replicas, right? Like things get way more complicated when it seems like an easy problem on the surface. It's, you know, synchronizing clocks, synchronizing uh, the IDs and everything. Like it, it can get insane when you start thinking about that. And I didn't see that stuff in the show notes here. So, oh, um, it's in there. <laughs> it's, it's coming up. We oh, jumped, right. we jumped to the, the end of the episode. Dang it. Sorry. We're pretty much done. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs> so, uh, we'll have some resources we like, uh, some tips of the week. Uh, uh, we probably already did those too, right? I just wore that was earlier in the chapter. Uh, enjoy the survey. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, we've yeah. all done it. We've all jumped way we too far ahead. That's yeah. fine. Oh. Uh, to bring it back a little bit, I just want to say like, everything we're talking, uh, kind of hearkening, um, or everything we're talking about now is hearkening back to the cap theorem, which we've talked about several times on the show. Uh, basically, it's just the idea that you can have at most two out of the three choices for consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. So uh, the things that we're talking about with like a sync and async and um, problems with uh, replication lag deal with uh, the problems around trying to keep a system <laughs> as consistent and as available and partition tolerance can be. The, the cap theorem is kind of like that that joke because, you know, what's the joke like? Um, pick two. It could be cheap, it could be fast, or it could be right. Yeah. Right. And so, cap theorem is kind of like pick two. You get consistency, availability, or partition tolerance. Which ones do you want? So I actually just read a, uh, an article that kind of convinced me uh, to not use that metaphor anymore. Oh. And the article made the case that you can never really give up partition tolerance. And it made the case that basically you get at most two, meaning you get either consistency and partition tolerance or availability and partition tolerance, hmm. but you can't really have consistency and availability together. That's, you, you always have to choose one or the other there. That so you can have at most sense. two. Yeah, that makes sense because as we get further into the show, we'll, we'll touch on why. 
Okay. Yes. So it's really pick one. Do you want consistency or availability? Yes. And, and, and also how well do you do with partition tolerance? So that's, that's why I'm the, I wrote it this way. And I, cause I just, I literally just read the article before I, I, I typed this and said, you get at most two. So if you do a good job, you could have consistency and partition tolerance somewhat or availability and partition tolerance. But the, the article made the case. And now I'm friendly in the camp that you cannot have a database that is both consistent and available. Uh, Highly available. Uh, yeah, no, that's right. That's right. It, yeah, so I'll find that article. I'm sure I'm sure I've mentioned this in the past when we talked about the cap theorem, but <clears throat> I want to make sure like it can't just be me, right? Because like anytime I hear cap theorem, I immediately assume like we're we're discussing Captain America, right? Like it had like that's how that's how you become Captain America is you take some of the cap theorem. And then you become Captain America, like eventually, right? Uh, it might just be you. I don't oh. know. <laughs> yeah. That's a little awkward. <laughs> Fine. Fine. Yeah, I'll have to find the article. Um, there you go. So, so, Joe, you have in here the book mentions chain replication. I saw that same link in the book. Did you actually follow it? I was too much into reading the chapter that yep. I didn't go off on the tangent. So I did a little bit, um, specifically because I, I think the reason I picked up the book again, cause I was like, I've got a case where I want something like chain replication is because I've got a situation where, uh, I need to be tailing an op log. Um, I'm doing, I'm basically doing some data syncing where, uh, I've got a, an application that acts like a replica. It follows changes to a database and then I do some stuff with that change log. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm doing this very high level. I'm using tools like DBZM and so I'm doing it, but I don't have access to the primary because of networking, whatever. And so what I need to do is I need to sync changes from a replica, but the replicas traditionally don't publish the change log or the op- operation log or the write ahead log. They're consumers, not publishers of it. So I was like, well, what the heck is that? <laughs> is there a, a situation? Is that a flag I can turn on or something? <laughs> You know, in oh, order to enable this. So yep. you're saying you were trying to get the changes from a database, didn't have access to the primary, have access yep. to the replica, but the replica doesn't publish those changes. That's right. Because it doesn't write any itself. Yeah. And so you imagine like the owner of this database is like, I don't trust you. You can right. read from me, but you, your user, your account, uh, your authorization key does not allow, uh, reading from the primary. Wow. Okay. Like, okay, that's fine. All I need to do is read and then smack brick wall. Right. Uh, looking at you, Mongo. Well, funny. So guess what? Mongo does support chain replication in some cases, but I haven't gone down deep enough in, to know if I'll be able to do that. But yeah, I mean, that is like, that is exactly the situation I'm looking at. And it looks like maybe it's going to be possible thanks to this crazy thing called chain replication, which is exactly what it sounds like with replicas following. Well, with followers following followers. Right. Yeah. So instead of replicas reading from the primary, a replica can get its copy of data from another replica. Yep. And yeah. there's a, it's a trigger that sounds, it seems like you should just be able to just do it. Like, what's the problem? Right. And just publish, you know, like forward it on along. But the deal is, uh, you know, we talked about sync and async and how uh, maybe the leader knows whether its replicas have gotten the data and it can use that information to know, okay, I can accept more, you know, depending on how you've got that synchronicity uh, tuned. But if it's got this chain replication thing going on, then it doesn't have that communication channel between the leader and follower and the follower's follower. And so there's things that it might be missing from the API that maybe those followers need to communicate back with the leader in order to kind of move stuff along. So it oh, just yeah. gets a little tricky. That's yeah. interesting. 
Because usually the primary is what's keeping track of, of who's done what. And if you've got a follower following another follower, then that, then that follower has to know that the other follower was, was it's actually finished what it needs to do. So essentially now you got a bunch of primary acting, um, secondaries or replicas, you know, performing the same job. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. It's not a one way flow. There's cross talk. There's back talk from the followers to the leader sometimes. Yep. I never, um, this is why I love this book because like, it'll make you think about things that you might have just never thought about, or you just took for granted. And definitely like this book has forced me to, to think about like the data structures and how databases would work and organize their data and things like that. And this is another one of the examples where like, I just kind of always assumed that, you know, it would have to be able to like read from, from a, a replica following a replica just seems something like, well, that surely that has to be a thing, right? Because if I think about this in terms of like uh, a geographically spread system, right? It might be really expensive. It might be a really expensive operation for a replica on the other side of the world to have to come back to the opposite side in order to, to get that, that update. And there might be replicas in between. that would be like much faster in terms of latency. And so just trust that it would get there. And so, you know, I, I, I never, I never considered that it, it wasn't possible. Right. Or that it wasn't just how it worked. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but now that we're talking about it, it's forcing me to think like, oh yeah, there, I could definitely see some problems where like, okay, what happens if that the replica in between the, the, the end replica and the primary, you know, one of those middle replicas goes out, then what do you do? Right. And so now I'm like, okay, yeah, I could totally see why you might not ever want that. you want all the replicas to come back to the primary. But then it also begs the question too, of like, well, gee, now it seems like you're just putting that much more workload on the primary Mm -hmm. because now not only is it serving the world for all of the rights, but it has to serve all of the replicas for all the reads. So now you definitely want your reads distributed across the replicas because the primary is already doing so much work, depending on like, if we're talking about like really glow, you know, huge scale type application, right? Like if you only have like, you know, three replicas, then who cares? It's probably not that big a deal, you know, but yeah, I I mean, that, that's the thing that I love about this book though, is it, it, it makes you put on your thinking hat for the, 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 the minutia of things like databases that you would otherwise just be like, well, you know, I take it for granted. Cause like, especially like as a, you know, an application developer where it's like a database is just one of the things in the toolkit of like things that we're using, but it's not like I, I we didn't devote our entire career to like master the mastery of that thing. Right. And so it was, it's been easy to like take for granted some of these things you know, concepts. Right. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. I definitely feel like, um, this reading this book has really, uh, helped me understand Kafka, which I'm still, <laughs> that could be another subtitle for, but, uh, yeah, just, there's so many things that like when I first got started with Kafka that I just thought were like almost like insultingly hard, you know, like, you ever hear the joke about like, um, open source companies that make the software so hard to use that you have to buy their services, whatever. Like I kind of felt that way about Kafka a little. I was like, there's no way. Why does it take like eight services to do anything? 
what's his bootstrap server crap like what's his in sync replicas like what's the part that, like partition file like who cares just like let me do the thing <laughs> and now read the book it's like oh actually it, it almost seems like they designed kafka like around this, the concepts in this book it's like they went through chapter by chapter and like oh okay let's pick this over that and this over that and they designed a system by kind of picking all the best things they wanted for this one particular use case and they just did it and wait a minute and wasn't it well. martin because uh, this is written by martin Kleppman. wasn't yep. he involved in kafka oh i don't know am i wrong I thought I remembered that somewhere in the book. He didn't Saying, work. Like, the only thing he's in. Uh, he's a researcher distributed, blah, blah, blah. Uh, previously oh, worked funny. at LinkedIn. Hey, yeah. Working LinkedIn on large scale infrastructure. Yeah. And, and Kafka started from LinkedIn. Yeah. Did it not? Yeah. 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 It did. The back of the book has a, a quote from the, <laughs> from the creator of Kafka and the CEO. Oh yeah. There it is. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah, I think there yeah, was. I, I I thought I remembered like maybe in the preface or something like there was some kind of a connection to him and Kafka. So I, I did just find out a benefit to having a paperback book is uh, you can <laughs> actually flip it over and look at the back of it. So I can't do that to my digital copy. Yeah, yeah. That's the th- that's the reason why I've always loved the paper ones. Is that like it's super easy to scan and flip through. Like I totally get you on the convenience of reading on the digital ones. But the convenience of searching to me, like, you know, aside from like, you know, control left type searching, but like the scanability of it right. is like so much easier when it's paper. Yeah. But, you know, that's just me talking. <laughs> oh, no. I found I found the article I was talking about earlier about you can't skip um, part. You can't sacrifice partition tolerance. So that was a really interesting article. Like I'm still kind of chewing on a little bit, but uh, yeah, it was good. Cool. Oh, uh, and so I uh, mentioned, just kind of wanted to like hammer home on the point. We said the algorithms are have, are basically solved, but the implementation details are so tough and so nuanced, and there's so many trade-offs that, that, that in the real-world application is tough. And this is an example of like the, the chain replication. And so I just wanted to mention another case where like imagine if the replica or the, the follower that you're following gets promoted to leader. And now what do you – what do you do? Do you try to find another replica? To, so there's so many little details written, so many little decisions you have to make when it comes time to actually building these these systems. And those details mean a lot about the the way people perceive and interact with your systems. It stinks. Well, I mean, the they also they don't, the book doesn't go into like huge detail on it, but there is a whole portion in this chapter related related to leader election. Yep, mm-hmm. you know, and. and you know, as I was reading it, I was thinking about like, how would I, how would I want to code that? Like, how, how would you decide, you know, leader election, right? I've always thought it sounded so easy. And so I am so, I must be so wrong about it because I've always heard it's notoriously difficult. And I always thought it's just like, well, one of them picks it. And if no one else has already grabbed it, then they get it. And if two grab, try to grab it at the same time, and both think they have it, then they just pick a random number and the bigger one wins. Done. But wait, did That's we not put this not in the show enough. notes? I don't know if we're jumping ahead here or not. No. If we if we didn't, yeah. So like one of the things, what you just said, sure, that could work. Another one is uh who has the most up to date data? Yeah. Right? Poll every one of the replicas and find out, hey, um, do you have the latest data? Do you whoever has the latest, most complete set of data from the primary could then be the follower, right? Like these are decisions you have to make, but doing in that takes time. Right, yeah. that takes time. And but even then, 
Uh, even with the time, I'm sorry, I, I, should, I should cut you off. Go ahead. No, you're good. I don't even know what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, I was going to say, so even then, like, let's say you've got a, a, a you know, the, one of those partitions, you've got a network uh, partition. So now you're on two totally separate networks and you've got four nodes over here, four nodes over there. Uh, and both of you elect leaders of <laughs> their four, you know, four nodes. And so now you've got two leaders when comes time the, the network heals itself. And now you've got these two things that have been kind of running off thinking that they were, you know, the captains of their own ship. And now we got to merge these things back together and they've diverged. Yeah. Which oh, by the leader. way, remember what that means when you're a leader, you take rights. So that's what he's saying. When they diverged, all of a sudden you have two different databases um, that are now taking the rights. And now you got to consolidate those somehow. And, yeah. and if you're talking about auto incrementing keys and garbage like that, Oh man, good I mean, luck. It's amazing that any of this works at all because like, <laughs> as you were describing this, well. I was just thinking about like, imagine you had, a database that was uh, geographically spread across just the United States, right? And let's say that your replica, your 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 leader was in, say, you know, someplace central like a Texas, for example. But you got replicas that are spread out, you know, across the East Coast, across the West Coast, across the the North. What do they call it? Northwest, whatever. You know, in tr- in in an effort to like m- make those. Uh, to reduce latency on those reads, right? But now, let's say that uh, there's a big major mal outage in the internet for the United States that divides the country, right? And so you got half your replicas on the east of the country, half of them on the west, and they're each going to pick their own replica to be the new leader. And now what happens when right. the network comes back together, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, so many problems like that. It's like, how, how does this even, how I, it's amazing. It even works. Like, yeah. And does it all the time? Maybe it doesn't. No, it Maybe doesn't. there's a time it where doesn't. you're like, I, I, that's one of the things that they said in the book too, is there are times where people will opt to manually fail things over as opposed to allowing for automatic failovers because they want to be able to control how the things happen, right? Because, you know, may, it, I, one of the examples they had was, let's say that you have your threshold set at 30 seconds for a response, right? Like, basically, these things know if they're alive because they're constantly sending pings back and forth to each other, right? And let's say that you send one, and it it was going to take 35 seconds to respond. So, because you cross that 30-second threshold, it starts going into, yo, time to, time to fail over mode, and and that server was just busy at the time, so it couldn't it couldn't respond properly. So now you've got this situation where the network's going to be doing all this thing. Your, your servers are going into this mode where it's causing some problems. Oh, <coughs> only to find out that it really shouldn't have failed over in the first place. So, yeah, there's all kinds of difficult decisions that can happen, both automatically or if you want to do it manually, so that that you know that you need to do something. Well, if you think about it, remember back to. Um you know, the, the old days of how, of SQL server with uh high availability, there was a witness server yeah. and the right. purpose of the witness server is you would have a primary and a secondary. And the witness was basically like an unbiased third party that would say like, uh, yep, I can see both of you right now. You're both up and running fine. <clears throat> but if the primary went down, then the secondary could be like, well, Hey witness, can you see him? Can you see the primary or is it just me? Because then if the secondary can't get a message back from the witness or maybe the witness says, no, I can, then the 
then the witness, then the secondary could say like, Oh, well, I don't need to resume. I don't need to take over leadership capabilities because it's me. It's not him. Right. Right. But I don't know that that's like, you know, the most common way of doing it. it I'm Good sure news. it has. There's a whole chapter on it. <laughs> oh. Oh, if only there was a chapter on it. Right. Yep. Uh, yeah, so um, you, we kind of touched on it already, but um, just bring new followers online. Like I remember um, working with Elastic kind of uh, like early days and me adding a new node. Like I thought I would just give it the same cluster name, whatever. It would just work. But it turned out I had to do a little bit of extra legwork to let the other nodes know that I was adding another node because they all commun- communicate. Just like you, you mentioned, like these things need to know about each other. They don't just work in isolation. And so, um, yeah, bringing on a new node was not as easy as I thought it would be. And things have gotten much better. Like the systems are, for the most part, especially with like Kubernetes and, um, like auto scaling and just cloudy things in general have gotten to the point where you can uh, add like nodes to your clusters, uh, much easier to add replicas, um, without having to do a lot of like manual work. And, and just imagine like even updating configs on servers that are already running. A lot of times, you know, you have to, how do you send a message to them? Do you need to restart them? Like, how do you tell them like you're done? Well, I think that depends though. Right. Cause like, we, you know, by mentioning Kubernetes for, as an example, I mean, that, like that's kind of blurring the lines of like cl- the definition of the cluster that we're talking about. Because yeah. even with Kafka, if you were to like, just bring in another broker, you know, it doesn't mean that it's automatically going to distribute the topics, the partitions yeah, of those topics across that brand new broker. You have to manually go in. So it's a big deal. So like even in the Kafka world, like they, they recommend that you size your environment ahead of time if you're, you know, like plan for two years worth of size. And that's how you should plan to size your Kafka environment because it's kind of a hassle if you mm-hmm. decide later that you were like, Oh, Hey, let's add a new, a new broker and, and the downtime that you're going to take for moving those, those partitions around. But you know what, you know what though? Um, I think the, the, what Kubernetes has brought to the game though, is because that is an orchestration system that the, its whole job is to keep things in a, in a particular running state. It has made people, companies, systems think about, how to handle adding things or keeping things alive in a certain way. And so like one of the examples are Kubernetes operators, right? Like, so the whole notion of adding a broker, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with like the operator for, um, or Strimzy or something for Kafka, but typically those operators are set up to be able to do things like that. Right. And it's so like, it, which, yeah, so in this case, maybe not Kafka, but but like Crunchy Data, for example, on Postgres, right? Like they had features in their operator for adding things or backing up and doing all that kind of stuff. And I think what Kubernetes brought to the game was making companies think about ways that they could automate some of those things, right? So while it doesn't inherently just have it just because you're in Kubernetes, um, a lot of times, a lot of these systems are now coming online with the ways to automate these things. Yeah. I guess what I, the, the point that I was trying to make though is I wanted to be careful about how, like how we were using the, the term cluster here in like, you know, mixing it because like as it relates to data related things like an Elasticsearch or a Postgres or a Kafka, like 
you know, that's a big deal. And so like, you know, Joe mentioned, if you were to bring in a a new elastic search node, that doesn't mean it's automatically going to get, start getting used. Like you have to go through some manual effort and the same with same exists with Kafka. And even with the Strimzy operator, um, which Strimzy is, uh, you know, uh, a custom operator, Kubernetes operator that, um, tries to wrap a lot of the Kafka, um, bits into, uh, resource definitions that are like work, you know, like kind of quote, like a native Kafka, th- you know, thing, but it's really not. It's like, you know, through this custom operator. And, but, um, even in the Strimzy documentation though, there are certain operations, especially related to like manipulating your topics like this, where they straight up say, no, you got to <clears throat> manually go and do this because it is one of those like, Hold on to your butts because we're about to do some stuff in production. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Here yeah, we absolutely. go. So. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And uh, yeah, you can change the number of, another of replicas, and the operator is in charge of doing all the little operations for that, but it doesn't know there are human decisions that you need to make when you add those. Like, do you need to rebalance stuff? Do you need to just start? Yeah, it, like, there's all sorts of things that you just have to make decisions about, unfortunately. Right. It, it it is a complicated, you know, like for for our, if you know a DBA, you should buy him a beer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I think right. that's the takeaway from this book, right? So yeah, definitely. So one of the things that we have here is is we talk about bringing these new followers online, and and, and it is a common practice, right? Like you're going to have new replicas that you need to add or whatever to a cluster. Um, one of the ways that they do this a lot of times in databases is they'll take a snapshot of the primary database, the leader database at some point. Right. And that's, and a lot of times they'll set these up as like daily jobs, right. Or, or maybe multiple times a day to where you get a snapshot and to bring a new replica online, it's going to get the latest snapshot and then also find all the latest transactions that happened after that and try and replay them on top of it. Right. So. And this is where you brought up um, the SQL server log shipping Mm-hmm. Uh, before I'm, I'm not that I'm not familiar with it. Like conceptually, like I have the, like a high level idea of like, Hey, it's just, you know, getting the logs from there to there. Yeah. But, that's basically what it was. Yeah. It, it was that. So you, it, it was essentially just what we said here. You take a snapshot, you ship the, the transaction logs, I think more or less. I, I mean, I may not be saying this perfectly well and a DBA can, can chime in in the comments if they want, but and it would, sh- you know, they'll win a chance and they'll get a, a book. That's right. Or they'll um, get a chance they, to win a book. I'll say that eventually, right? Yeah, so it would ship the the logs that would get replayed on on the replicas, right? And that's the whole point of it. Um and I think that if I remember right, this is in the book, did they say that this was the common way or this was the older way? I think this was the older way where it would ship like the logs that were the actual statements and stuff. Because oh, that's it, the old way. Yeah, yeah that's the, the old way. way. Right ahead yeah. log shipping was the the majority way. Okay. Yeah. Our, from what I remember. Yeah, we'll get there. Yep. So yeah, once it replays all those on the replica, then the replica's caught up and everything's good to go. So yeah. All right. Well, I'm gonna be smarter by the time we're done with this episode. <laughs> We're going to bounce around it a few times. And if I'm not, then I guess I'll blame Joe. Right. Somebody's fault. 
This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring platform for real-time observability and detailed insights into Docker performance. Enhance visibility into container orchestration with a live container view with easily detectable clusters that are consuming excess resources using an auto-generated container map. Now, here's the thing. We're talking about uh, in this episode, uh, you know, replication and how and and what you might want to do, like how you would deal with situations of uh, a replica going down or the leader going down. And, you know, the beauty of it is when you have somebody like a data dog, you know, at your side to help you out with this, they make your life so much easier because from a monitoring point of view, they have you covered infrastructure monitoring. That is literally their game. They have you covered whether you're in the cloud, whether you're Docker or Kubernetes or whatever your containerized environment might be. They're going to be able to help you monitor that platform, that tech stack in its entirety so that you don't have to worry about split brain situations and bad databases. Oh no, what happened? Why did it go down? Cause you're going to know ahead of time. You're going to know like, Oh, there's, a, you know, uh, we should, uh, we should be aware because we're getting these alerts that something's going down and we should go ahead and take care of it before it gets really bad. And we mentioned that container map. Um, I don't know if, you, if I don't remember if we talked about it or not, but uh, if you just Google data dog container map, you can see what that looks like. They have a really cool video that literally walks through uh, stepping through a gigantic environment. And what's really cool about it is how well it scales because data dog knows a thing or two about making visualizations that scale so they look great when they're small. They look great when they're huge. And it's just awesome to see them flip around from things that are very tiny. And so you can see the individual details on uh, like one little thing. And then they zoom out and there are hundreds. And they zoom in somewhere else and you're back to seeing these kind of small details. So it gives you these uh, really convenient ways to interact with your data the way you think about your data. And, uh, I mean, Datadog, they're, they're the kings of this arena. They've been doing this for, for years. And so, uh, I mean, this is, this is how you do it. So go check that out. You might even refer to them as the lead dog. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. The data dog. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're amazing and the capabilities are, are just amazing. And out of the box, Datadog collects critical metrics from each of your Docker containers so that you can get immediate visibility into aggregated and disaggregated surface level traffic. And you know, we didn't even mention this part too, but they have over 450 plus vendor backed integrations. So whatever your tech stack is, just trust me when I say Datadog has you covered. And vendor backed is really good. I didn't just copy the code from uh, Stack Overflow like I do. Uh, so try <laughs> Try Data Dog today by starting a free 14 day trial and receiving a free Data Dog t shirt after just I creating one right. single dashboard. See, I, I think I don't know about this Data Dog. I think it's Data Dog. I think it's Data Dog too. So, so you should visit datadoghq.com slash coding blocks to see how you can enhance, enhance the visibility into your stack. Again, that's datadoghq.com slash coding blocks. Okay. Well, as I said at the start of this episode, uh, we greatly appreciate all the reviews that we get. Uh, it really does mean a lot to us. It's, it's kind of our motivation, uh, you know, a big motivating factor for sure um, in, in doing the show. So if you haven't left us a review, we would appreciate hearing your feedback. Uh, you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. 
And with that, we head into my favorite portion of the show. <laughs> Survey says. All right. I see I see you over there, Joe. <laughs> Mocking me. I'm dancing. Um, <laughs> I mean, you can't just scream it directly into the mic. You gotta like turn your head when you do it. So yep. that's right. Um, I don't know. Maybe one day we'll like capture that as like a meme or something. Um, okay. So we asked a few episodes back for your next car you plan to buy, and your choices were an electric car. I can tell people it's because it's green, but we all know it's about the acceleration or a hybrid just in case these EVs don't work out or a gasoline car. There's other kinds or a diesel turbo diesel at that or a fuel cell car like the Hindenburg, but on a smaller scale or Uber, the Uber mode of transportation or lastly, Anything with more than two wheels is too many. All right. This is an even number. So therefore, Jay-Z, you are first. All right. Well, I'm going to say uh, uh, extremely important 26%. Wait, what? That's not one of the choices? <laughs> he just made something up. <laughs> not even one of the choices, Jay Z. You're not even paying I, attention. Thirty percent. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I, I guess I'm gonna go with the gasoline car. Twenty six percent. Gasoline car, twenty six percent. Yeah. Okay. That's so funny. <laughs> okay. Oh, I. You know, man. Um, we're a bunch of we're a bunch of nerdy folks that do this. I'm going to say an electric car, and 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 I'll go with twenty six percent. Twenty six percent electric. Okay, that's a lot of percents. Not not hyper confident in this one. Okay, so uh, Jay Z, gasoline car, twenty six percent. Allen, electric car, twenty six percent. All right. So, what do you call an alligator in a vest? Uh, I got nothing. I got nothing. Same. Nothing. Normal? You should know this, Joe, living in Florida. Florida man should know like this. Just another day? I don't Just a Tuesday? <laughs> An investigator. Oh, my uh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, thank you, Dave, for sharing that uh, that tweet. Nice. Uh, and your answer is, the winner is, Alan. Look at Whoa. that. An electric right. car, 34% wow. of Holy the cow. Look at that. I did not expect that. Hey, speaking of which, and I hate to go off on too much of a tangent. Did you guys see the announcement on the Ford Lightning? Yes. Dude. That thing looks amazing. Yes. It will power your house. For three days. (laughs) For three days. And that's, that's, it'll pull a freight train. Yeah. Look. Like a fully loaded freight train that's hauling every F-150 model ever made. So, so I'm going to be honest with you. The Cybertruck's ugliest sin, right? Oh like, there's there, there's no question. Who designed it, that thing? It destroys the F-150, even the Lightning, in terms of specs and all that. But but the Rivian, um, some other companies that are coming out with this stuff, I'm going to be honest with you. 
if it came down to it, I'd probably get the Ford just because they've been around a long time, right? Like it would be really hard to drop 60, 70 K on a Rivian, knowing that these are the brand new kids on the block. Where do you even that, take that thing for service? Yeah. Are they going to be around for that thing? You guys remember the Fiskers? Oh, oh my man, God. The Fisker Karma. Such a beautiful car. One of the most beautiful cars ever made. That company was gone like a couple of years after they started selling. So it's like, do I would would I really want to drop that kind of coin on something that's going to disappear? And you know, another company bought it, bought the bought the rights to that car. So you can still buy that that car, but I don't think it's not called a Fisker Karma now. I think they just call it the Karma, mm. or some or either that or they just call it the Fisker. I don't remember which, but yeah, that car was ridiculously gorgeous. Just so awesome. Now it is kind of funny though. Um, Oh man, I got to find this YouTube channel for you, Alan. Jay-Z probably could care less about any of the conversation (laughs) we're having right now. But um, there is a, a channel that I watch a lot. uh, And his name is, Oh gosh, why would he have to have his name as his channel name? Cause I can't pronounce that. (laughs) So uh, it's something like Doug DeMuro. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, watch, I watch him all the time. Yes. Yeah, his channel is fantastic, and he has one. He has a video on the Fisker Karma, That's like the original version of it too, and like how how silly the car was in reality. But yeah, just totally beautiful car. If you've never seen one, uh, go googling googling for it because it is uh, it's worth a peek. But Especially yeah, when you consider the time that it was when it was created too. Oh man, it's over like a 10 decade years ago. ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but in, in all honesty, the F-150 Lightning does look pretty amazing. It, it's going to have over, on the extended battery, over a 300-mile range. And the cool part, Jay-Z, mm-hmm. like you said, is if you have them hook it up to your house, if you're without power, as you are down in Florida during storms and whatnot on occasion, um, it can actually flip over and power your house with 9 kilowatts of power or something a day for 3 days or something like it's pretty incredible it is so yeah, yeah i it, don't know it's gorgeous too and like the display yeah. in the thing is gigantic yeah like man. it's got this huge center console that i don't even know what it is like maybe a 19 inch monitor flipped on end or something <laughs> I, it's stupid size it's ridiculously sized yeah. and then there's lighting all around it so you know You'll always be able to see, including lighting inside the bed so that you can see the contents of your bed. And it's um, got a frunk because yep. there's no motor. It's got a front. It has trunk. 11 power outlets spread around the exterior of the vehicle. So everybody who voted that they're going to get an electric car, you need to go check out the Ford Lightning and know that this should be on your wish list. Oh, <laughs> I, I just Googled this. You guys are talking about a truck? Dude. Dude, you getting excited about a truck? <laughs> I, man. The, 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 like the take to McDonald's? Dude, you're getting kicked out the South. Whoop did you I'll say, man, it might be important, but not enough to go out of your way. 26%. Dude. <laughs> no. Look, I'm telling you, the, the, when this truck comes out, like, I, I'm with Alan on this. Like, there is going to be a run on this truck. I, the F one fifty is already the number one, you know, best selling vehicle of all time since its creation. I mean, it's been right. number one for. It says it. Oh, I'm looking at it right now for the past forty four years. Forty four uh, years. Forty four years. Best selling truck of all time. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when this thing comes out, like it. I, there's no doubt in my mind that this thing is going to be wildly popular. There, you're going to see them all over the place. It will be the truck to beat in terms of an electric truck. 
Totally. And not without a good reason for it too. I mean, it, it looks, looks better than the other one. Now the Rivian is, is a pretty good looking. It's one. beautiful. Oh yeah. The Rivian's beautiful. And there's another one too. I can't remember its name. It, it almost looks like the, um, a Lincoln emblem on it, but it's not. Um, do you remember the one I'm talking about? No. It's like the Titan or something. No, that's Nissan. The, okay. No, the Rivian. Uh, I don't know. Any anyway, rate. All right. So, so today's survey. Joe, yeah. Joe's yeah. The important, over stuff, there. the important stuff. <laughs> I was like, I don't care. Uh, yeah, right? B, 10%. All right. So <laughs> we, if, if we were to start a car podcast, Joe would be like, I'm out. Yeah. Right. Like, Outlaw and I could talk for another 20 hours. Dude. <laughs> I, a so, car. I so About badly, a car. like if I could have the job that those guys from, uh, top, 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 top gear. gear and, uh, the grand tour, like, you know, Jeremy and captain slow and Richard, like I would, that is the dream job ever for, you know, for me. Like, I would love to have that job. Oh, you're going to like, let me like race your Lamborghini around the track and like, you know, hope that I do. Well, okay, well, you know, here we go. Yeah, that's right. I, I've got the Aston Martin Vulcan, right? I'll never get out of it, but I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why would you? Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Well, for this episode's boring survey then. Um. <laughs> How important is it to learn advanced programming techniques? And your choices are now, if you've been paying attention, Jay Z's already given you all your choices, so I don't need to read them. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, how important is it to learn advanced programming techniques? And your choices are extremely important. You got to keep, sh- you got to keep sharpening that saw or man, eh, it might be important, but not enough to go out of your way. You'll learn it as you go. Or, wait, there's advanced programming techniques? Like what, switch statements? Or, it's not important at all. There's already a Stack Overflow answer for it. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. Get started on Linode today with a $100 in free credit for listeners of Coding Box. That's $100. You can find all the details by going to linode.com slash codingbox. Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of your location. So wherever it's convenient for you to have the data center, don't worry about the cost. It's not That's not even going to factor into your decision. Uh, you can do a lot of the $100. Uh, this episode, we've been talking about replication. You can very easily spin up, uh, say, a three-node Kubernetes cluster with uh, those nodes in very different parts of the world. And you can experiment with throwing up different databases and then killing those boxes just to see what happens and see how things react. And that's the kind of experiments that you can run. And you can run those as experiments because it's so fast and easy and cheap. That it uh, is just crazy. And with that hundred dollars free credit, you can do all that stuff. And just a matter of, uh, it's crazy how fast you can spin up a cluster. Uh, and you can do that really quickly and give that a shot because why not? Hey, so I'll take it even a step further. So Linode offers all that. You can do your Kubernetes cluster and all that, but sometimes you just want things to run and you don't want to have to think about it too terribly much. They also have a marketplace. So if you go to linode.com slash marketplace, 
you'll actually see these one click installs to where I don't know, maybe, maybe you want to set up a, uh, a monitoring service. You want something like Grafana up there and running. You can do that. They have that. Uh, if it, maybe you want a Redis or a Postgres SQL or a MySQL or MariaDB type thing, they all have one click install. So if you just want to get up and running quickly, you can go to the marketplace and do that as well. Yeah. I was going to add to that, like specific to this episode, uh, you know, if you don't want to deal with the Kubernetes, you could absolutely super simple. You want to spin up MongoDB? You want to spin up MySQL? You want to spin up Postgres? Like Alan said, just go to the marketplace, find the, the technology you want and say, click it and then say, create Linode. And it will spin up that uh, machine for you with that particular service and you're done. You can like bring up your own cluster of Postgres and see what happens when you when you uh, tear take one down just to see for the fun of it, you know, cause that's what we do. That's, that's how we roll in our, in our day, you know, that's right. And, and remember if you go to linode.com slash coding blocks and you get a hundred dollars free credit for this, just choose the data center nearest you. You also get 24, seven, 365 days a year, human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. Uh, you could choose the shared or dedicated compute instances, or you can use your $100 in credit on S3 compatible object storage or managed Kubernetes, whatever you want. And if it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. So visit linode.com slash coding blocks and click on that create free account button to get it all started. All right. So jump back in, uh, talking about how we handle outages. So we've already kind of touched on some wait, of these wait, things. Wait, we know how we handle outages. You get the F-150, you plug it up to your house. Yeah. We discussed this already. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Where were you? <laughs> oh my gosh. How about, no. how about if I bring us back in though with a joke? Can I do that? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. What is the tallest building in the world? Uh, isn't it the Michelin tire or something? I don't know. It's not going to be anything. Oh, it's real. probably in Dubois. The library has got the most stories. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Oh my gosh. That's from, right. Hey, that's my dad joke. API right there. Nice. Ah, very nice. nice. Very nice. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So sorry. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt on the handling outages. No more Ford lightning stuff. All right. I'm done. <laughs> All right. So now we're talking about handling uh, outages in our cluster of nodes uh, containing many uh, replicas. And the deal is nodes can go down at any given time. And so what happens if a non-leader goes down? So a follower goes down. Well, we've got uh, we've got some choices and some decisions that databases can make. But for the most part, who cares? Right. <laughs> Uh, I mean, if you're reading from that replica, then maybe that's a problem. Um, but I, I don't know. I just can't care that much. <laughs> well, well, I mean, if you've only got one replica, then you that's care a problem. lot, right? Yeah. You care a lot. Now you need to spin up another replica and get something, you know, to where it's copied the the primary pretty quick. Yeah, because otherwise but, you have no fault tolerance at that point. Right. Yeah. Now, now your availability is in, in jeopardy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'm with you. If it's just a read-only replica or something like that, then maybe you don't care. Yep. We should be clear though here, because you know we say like you know nodes can go down at any time, but they don't have to quote go down. Like they could be running, but they right. just don't yeah. have network access to. Can't, can't yeah. be talked well, to, right? You know, 
could be no fault of their own. Yeah. So, so think about it this way. If you're a database, uh, you're a database and you are focused on being highly available, meaning you really don't want to go down no matter what, then chances are if a follower goes down, then you don't really care too much. You're not going to stop the whole thing. You're not going to pull the and on cord and shut everything down and say no more requests. Uh, if you are a database that's strongly concerned with being consistent, meaning that when you do things like take on rights, you make sure that your replicas have those rights before you confirm them to the producer, then you might consider shutting things down and saying, hey, uh, I can't take on any more rights or reads right now because I've got a follower down and that follower is very important. So that's kind of a, a different philosophy that different databases kind of take. And, and oftentimes they're configurable. So you can kind of pick and choose how you want your database to, to act. Just because, like Alice said, if you only got one uh, one replica and it goes down, that can mean something very important. Uh, also, if you just got um, like a kind of traditional relational database, uh, that's very important. And you've got, um, you know, an important replica that goes down that maybe is used for i don't know banking i don't, I don't know what you'd use it for it'd be very important but it, it might be worth shutting down because you are afraid that maybe that replica is still trying to serve data or is trying to do stuff and so you don't want to continue on taking rights until uh you figure out exactly what went on because you don't want that other replica that you think is down that is maybe just on a segment of the network thinking it's become the leader you don't really know what's happened so until a human comes in and reconciles that and says let's move move on you could be in a bad state well that goes back to the you know the the usa example that i gave where like the country gets split you know because of a major network out you know outage and then you get into the split brain scenario yeah so if you care about if you're a database that cares about highly being highly available you probably will just go ahead and elect new leaders and then deal with the problem later if you're a database that consider that strongly cares about being consistent you might say i can't i i lost communication with an, another replica uh i don't want it going on and thinking you know taking on rights or i don't want i don't know what's happening i don't know about the state of the world so i'm just going to shut down until someone tells me that things are okay again and they're both right answers uh, so when the replica becomes available again, uh, we talked about that catch-up mechanism where it basically takes a snapshot and then kind of catches up. And then once the replica is fully on, you're able to, to re-add it. So we can basically use the same algorithm that we kind of described there. So that's well, interesting. I hadn't thought about this, but that catch-up mechanism, if it was a replica that just went offline for a little while, do you, I mean, that's probably another decision that the database system has to make, right? Like, do you fully restore from the snapshot snapshot and then get the 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 catch-up logs or do you just try and reconcile what what logs hadn't made it over since since it went offline right like i mean those are two different decisions that have different implications on them and And both are probably legit you might you're you might actually implement it to where it could handle both and it might say well how far behind are you and then i'll use that as a decision point uh, as to what what type of strategy we use, because if you yeah. know you're a few seconds behind, it might be good enough to just send you the few log entries that I've had coming in. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about like replica of replica chain replication. Um, that's another case where the, we've got leaders talking, sorry, followers talking to the leaders to say, "Hey, here's what I've got. Help me catch back up, and let me know what I'm caught up." So, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so, what happens if you lose the leader? Well. That's where we start getting into much more complicated things. So, uh, Al mentioned failover. One of the replicas needs to be promoted, in which case needs, you know, 
figure out which one's going to be and everyone needs to kind of update their configurations and then move right along. And it can be automatic in some cases, but we talked about, you know, the problems there, like, you know, what if you, what if a bad decision is made? What if both you've got two leaders taking, you know, split brain taking on rights, getting into an inconsistent state that then you've got a big mess to clean up. It would have been easier if just shut down. One thing that we're kind of taking for granted though, is that like, um, we keep saying split brain, but we never technically defined it. But yep. it, so if you've never heard that term, uh, it, it is a common term, but it basically means like in this scenario where, uh, you know, take it like as we refer to a primary and a secondary in the, in a database kind of world that, um, you know, there's, there's something that causes an outage to where one of the replicas thinks that it should take over as a leader. And so now you have two leaders and that's what's referred to as split brain because some traffic might go to one leader and other traffic might go to the new leader. And so you have new data that came into both and then you have to figure out how to reconcile that. Yeah. Bad news. You don't, you don't want to do do that. No. Uh, that's like when, it, when you got a problem like that, that's when like you shut down, you put the site into maintenance mode, the application, you just turn it off and then you order some pizzas and you get some people together to figure out how the heck you even go about doing that. And it's going to be some manual decisions that you're not going to, you're not going to like. Uh, so um, before you can fail over first, you have to determine if the leader has failed, which is really tricky. Like how, especially for replicas, you know, uh, outlaw mentioned the witnesses. Um, so if you're even a human, sometimes it can be hard to know what's going on. If you've lost uh, access to a data center or something, um, you know, is it me or is it just, <laughs> you know, like what's the problem here? Uh, so choosing a new leader, there's a whole uh, chapter on that. And there's some, some interesting algorithms I've heard of RAF before and some, um, even calling them algorithm is almost like misleading because it's kind of a collection of algorithms and, you know, servers. Like we've talked about Zookeeper before, which is a system often used for kind of Have being a participant. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we've yeah. never done an episode on Kafka. We, we've never gone into detail about what Zookeeper does. Yeah, no, no. We've mentioned it in passing. It's a key value store. <laughs> done. It does, a, it does a lot of little things. I don't know. Well, we should talk about Zookeeper one day. We should. Although, doesn't it seem like a lot of, uh, I mean, it's a really popular open source, you know, way for, for managing this type of thing. It seems like a lot of, a lot of open source projects are trying to get rid of it as a dependency. I know Kafka for a long time has talked about trying to, oh, to kill that. It's definitely on the Kafka roadmap. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's worth doing a, an episode on it or not, but it is interesting because it was used for a lot of open source projects to to make sure the system stayed running and, you know, all that. I mean, we've been doing a lot of Kafka in the recent years and I still don't know what how Zookeeper fits. I know it's necessary, it's part of it, but I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's just I guess I'll just uh, you know, have it running and it does something. Yep. You know, and like, um, so we talked about the, like these nodes need to talk about each other and know about the replicas in order to kind of publish things. The replicas need to know where the leaders are. Um, so I, I know at least in Kafka, like Zookeeper, uh, just holds a lot of that data. And so a lot of things are the APIs go out and they ask like Zookeeper, like, Zookeeper, like, Hey, who's, which leader should I use? Or, you know, what are my leaders? Bootstrap service too. It's just, a, it gives you a, uh, one place to talk to. And then the bootstrap server is in charge of saying, okay, you, get to talk to these people and it'll, it'll afford you a list of um, 
the the replicas that you should be talking to and like that's zookeepers involved in there for now for Kafka but they want to get rid of it because they want to cut the dependencies they don't have another service that you have to secure access to and everything yeah and but like think about everything you just described is like oh well it's got its own like you know data management that it has to do you know it has its own availability requirements so now there's like a whole other (laughs) i need this other cluster for my cluster yeah, like, seriously. Like suddenly, yeah. like yeah, seriously. when did Exhibit get to be into hard software architecture? And he's like, "Hey, dog, I heard you like clusters, so I added a cluster to your cluster, so you can have a cluster." Yeah, for real. <laughs> and how? Yeah, how do you keep a zookeeper on as well? I mean, you could set up another zookeeper, and uh, <laughs> yeah. zookeepers all the way down, all the way down. Yep, and uh, yeah, a, a leader election, like we mentioned, is like notoriously hard. Even though I think I can do it. Pretty easily. <laughs> Random numbers, you said. That's it. Done. Five lines yeah. of code. Done. I mean, I I could I wrote it while we were just on this call here. That's right. So, yeah. So obviously, I'm missing some major major things. You need um, to get commit and get push. Yeah. That's it. Uh, yeah. Couple A. Uh, reconfigure. So uh, the um, the last thing that can kind of happen. Uh, the last thing that needs app for uh, failover is basically any clients need to be updated. So, um, you know, we mentioned like the bootstrap service for like Kafka or Zookeeper, but, um, you know, as we said for the elastic too, like, um, sometimes see these nodes need to know about each other. So when you add a new one, the clients need to know that something new has been added that they either need to rebalance or communicate with in order to kind of, um, split and route and do all the crazy things with data that we're used to doing. And uh, failover is hard. Um, so, you know, we mentioned like how long to, to decide until you're dead. Uh, even then, um, what do you do when the leader comes back? Um, you know, who's in charge of kind of bringing that data back together? This is all stuff that we kind of jumped onto earlier. So we were here, kind of like a split brain we mentioned. Well, hold up, uh, hold up. There is one, one big thing that I thought was interesting. I remember reading this last night that when the leader comes back, what do you do? What if there were rights to that leader that, that like, what do you do? Do you throw them away? Like, do you put your entire system in an inconsistent state? Like, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard. But, man, you're, you're talking about a bunch of little things that can create some really big inconsistencies in your systems. There, there was actually a mention of uh, an issue that I don't remember if it was specific to this part of the chapter, but it was kind of similar where they were talking about there was a, a GitHub outage and they had um, an auto incrementing ID oh, yeah. for, for the records. So as new oh. records were being inserted, it, you would automatically increment to, you know, five and six and seven and eight. And they had this outage to where it got into the split brain scenario and things were getting duplicated uh, into both. And then when they got the system back up and running, they were actually from a uh, security and privacy kind of point of view realized that they were serving up the wrong data to the wrong client because the IDs got and mm. you know, messed up as part of, as part of that. If I, if I recall that, I think that was, you know, that is might right. have some details yeah. messed up, but yeah. it's awful. Yeah. That's what they said. They were, they were serving data to the wrong customers because the IDs were out of sync. That's crazy. Yeah. And yeah, that was awful. GitHub too. I mean, we're not talking about like a small <laughs> yeah. organization. We're right. talking about GitHub and, I was baffled when I found out that they run on MySQL. Like, really? Yeah, and you it was sharded MySQL. And you ran on MySQL? It was sharded MySQL, right? It was the shards that got out of sync and, and there were some problems. So, at any rate, yeah. Um, 
It's crazy. Just one little thing. One little thing. One ID could be wrong and it could completely jack everything up. So crazy. I like if you if someone out there knows the answer, is there a compelling reason to ever use MySQL over Postgres now? Of course, if you're using like a, a WordPress or something, like I understand that, but oh, even for WordPress, I hate it. Well, I'm just saying, like out of total ignorance, is there ever a reason why you would pick pick uh, MySQL or Maria over Postgres I mean, if you're twenty years doing ago a new when, database? when MySQL was hitting the streets? You know, it's like, oh, hey, a free database system, finally, yeah, let's use it. Let's let's do everything with MySQL. But yeah, to your point now, like in the year 2021. When you have Postgres available for free, so I think I think this is a good opportunity for somebody to leave a comment on on the episode because I think that this is actually a really good conversation. And then the the only thing I could think of off the top of my head is the tooling for MySQL is still way better than a lot of tooling for Postgres, unless you go buy DataGrip. If you buy DataGrip, that's different. But the open source tools for Postgres are not great. There's a lot of stuff like Postgres is definitely very complicated. It's got a lot of really advanced features. Uh, so I, I guess you could argue that maybe MySQL is simpler. Same same way you could say like, well, I use SQLite instead of something else. You know, it's like it's simpler, it's easier, whatever. Although, uh, yeah, I was curious. I do have one bit of hatred for Postgres though, w- like one seriously strong bit of hatred for Postgres. Syntax, yeah. Bring it, fight me. No, let's not, do it. not syntax. Come on, their date columns don't store offsets. Outside. Come on, let's do this. Don't store offsets. You cannot get. You have to write your own way. Yeah, that is true. To handle offsets and dates, and that is complete garbage. One hundred percent trash. Um, meaning, even if you do set a column as a as a timestamp column in Postgres, and you tell it that it's a timestamp with an offset column, with all no, it it's means time, is it's with time zone. With time zone, all it means is when you insert that data into it, it's going to convert it to UTC and throw away the offset. So that is a major piece of hatred for Postgres that they do not have a column that will allow you to store the offset with the date. So anyway, yeah, or that's not necessarily a, that, a column, but just like it's not like a built-in a data type of that data. Yeah, type. there's no data type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you want to add the associated an updated column to every single table you've got, you're going to be doing either you create a custom type, have or uh, you end up having type. to add two columns, one for the uh, exactly. timestamp, one for the offset, which is exactly. Like, which if, if, if you're going to do that, create a custom type. Right, though. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember correctly, though, you can. You can derive the offset from the time zone, but you cannot derive the time zone from the offset. That's always correct. But so, so therefore, having the time zone gives you you can de- you can determine the offset. It throws away the time zone. It converts everything to UTC and stores the UTC value. You don't get it. No, there you don't is get a, to keep there it. is a data type with time zone. Yeah, read the read the docs. It throws it away. It converts it to UTC and throws it away. <laughs> Yeah, believe me, I, I was trying to do some stuff that I was going to stream on YouTube the other night, and I went down a rabbit hole and got really mad about it. Um, so at any rate, right, well, uh, yeah. I'm going to be off in documentation line for the rest of the episode. Can we can we press pause? <laughs> All right, let's go back. Sorry about that. All right. So just like we kind of hit on before, there's solutions to these problems, and uh, it just gets really down to details. And there's some things that you're just going to have to lose. There's some things that you're going to have to just decide, like, this is what we're going to do about it, and we're going to have to deal with consequences because there's no just perfect, easy, clean, elegant solutions. Um, some of the problems we mentioned, uh, node failures and reliable networks. 
Uh, and yeah, basically depending on what database you're using, what it's being used for and maybe being configured for, um, you know, you're going to kind of make it, make your best configuration and hope it's good enough. Uh, so when it comes to replication logs, remember, these are the things that the followers use to follow <laughs> to get the changes. There's three main strategies here. We've kind of hit on them. So we'll, we'll go through quickly here too. And uh, the first one is the one that Alan talked about first, which is uh, the statement-based replication, which is the old MySQL way of doing things where the leader logs every insert, update, delete, and the followers execute those commands just as if you would type them in order. The problems, things like now, rand, like random numbers, new IDs can be different. So they had to kind of hack around those and try to find ways to kind of do stuff like that. But even still, you have problems with things like auto increments and especially with transactions. Because when you edit, you run a transaction, how do you 100% guarantee that things happen in the same order on different systems? So even if you run the same commands, you're not guaranteed to get the exact same uh, output. And so basically MySQL abandoned this because it just was too finicky. They were running into problems with the approach. And... Uh, yeah, they called out the specific version two of MySQL where they changed it. I don't remember if it was, it was like five, yeah, five dot one. Yep. And I have a question here about what LSM databases do uh, with things during the delete compaction phases. And oh, right, right, right. So I was thinking about so um, MySQL is uh, a B tree. You know, we talked about a little bit between differences between B tree databases where you can do things like make updates to the data in line. And LSM databases, which are things like Elastic or um, some database with Kafka, um, just takes in basically writes data to logs and uh, in append-only fashion, and then later goes back and does things like cleans up and deletes zombies and, and basically kind of either throws away old data or compacts it somehow. And if you are, are doing a statement-based replication, then you can have replicas that get out of sync with each other because maybe one has started compaction and the other hasn't, and so. Um, you just, you basically can't have LSM databases doing statement based replication that are consistent. And you can try to work around it. Just like we mentioned with like bicycle trying to pop the appropriate values in there, but it's an uphill battle because there's a better solution. And that is write ahead log shipping. And this sounds kind of similar. Like we've talked about write ahead logs several times. It's basically what the database does. It kind of writes down what it's going to do before it does it. And then uh, if it needs to roll something back or it, it comes in handy a bunch of different ways. But at a glance, it doesn't really sound that much different. Like I always kind of thought of the write ahead log as basically being a log of the things that I'm going to do before I go do them. Why wouldn't it be the actual statements? But the thing is, is it provides one level of abstraction. And it uh, also has more details. So uh, when I say, maybe saying a level of abstraction is not a good way of saying it, but um, it actually has finer details, like um, basically like where things are going to be written to, like specifically on disk. So like um, literal like segment numbers. And uh, it's very much what the database is going to do very precisely and exactly. Well, but if I, if, am I, Remembering it wrong though, because it was saying that like that depended on the particular uh, like you know database, for example, implementation. Like some of them might be that specific where they knew, uh, you know, the storage layer, and they would like say like, "Hey, this is how you're gonna ship this piece." But other other parts might be just be like, "Hey, it's this row," or "It's hey, it's these columns for mm -hmm. this row." 
That was different. So what he's talking about right now with the right ahead log shipping, it was very much at the storage layer, like what he was saying. It it, it dealt with how data was stored at the file level, right? And the problem with that that they said too is because it is so coupled to that storage engine, the upgrades could be really painful. Oh, right. Because they yep. got into examples to where like, you would probably have to upgrade the replicas before you could upgrade the primary. So you upgrade your replicas, then you'd purposely do a failover so that a new, an upgraded replica becomes the primary. Then you can update the previous primary. And right? they took that even to a further extent and said that that may not even be possible if the upgrade had an incompatible storage engine, like basically to make this work well with upgrading your, your database server is the newer version of the server would have to have the old version compatibility built in. If it didn't, then you're probably going to have downtime because there's no way to avoid it. So yeah, this was because it was dealing with the low level storage of the data and how it was stored on disk. It causes problems, even though it worked better than the other one, which was the, you know, statement shipping. um, It still had its problems. Oh yeah. It called it statement based replication versus right ahead log shipping. Right. Yep. But then what you just leaked into was the next one, which was the row-based log replication. Yeah. Logical row-based log replication. Yeah. And so, uh, just, uh, so real quick, the right ahead uh, log shipping, that's still a very common feature of relational databases like Postgres and Oracle Most and even um, things like, server. yep. LSM databases too. So like uh, Elastic and stuff can still make use of this. But like, like you mentioned, the downside is that, you know, the upgrades uh, so row base is the final one. And it mentioned that, uh, my SQL now has got this, uh, bin log format, not the final one. Uh, well, so final in terms of evolution, like, as in like this, uh, you know, right ahead log shipping was an evolution of statement based replication and row based log replication is kind of an evolution of right ahead. And there is a fourth type that's kind of on the side. Yeah. So let's say that row based is the last of the things that you should actually consider. They're the standard ones. They're they're kind of the way that things are usually done. Because that yeah. fourth one, that fourth one, yeah, I feel like this is clickbait. That fourth one will surprise you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we're we're teasing, but we'll get we're gonna get there real soon. So yeah, so uh, this way is uh, the one I was thinking of that the abstraction where it decouples the replication from the storage engine. So it's very similar to a write ahead log. It's just a little bit more abstract. So it cuts those details on like um, where um, what you call it. Um, like the actual binary uh, where the, like the locations on disk are going to be stored. And it almost sends like something uh, I, like I've seen this with Debezium and Mongo um, where it kind of like sends like a message that basically says like, Hey, there's update this row. Here are the two fields to change or, Hey, we're doing a delete of this ID in this table or collection, um, which is similar to what Kafka does too the time zones. Uh, so it's basically, it's more complicated in terms of like, um, you know, this is something where you take the statements in, you convert them for the write ahead log, and now you've got a process that goes and takes that write ahead log and then makes this kind of more generic. And so it's like a third layer. So it's more complicated, but uh, it, it allows the most flexibility. You don't have to worry about downtime. And this is frequently referred to as change data capture. So when people talk about CDC or change data capture, they're generally talking about row based log replication. Yeah, and and it's easy to understand why this is kind of a a preferred way is because 
now you're dealing with the actual rows that changed instead of all the logic to get there, right? So if if you're trying to replicate data across servers, um, imagine you have triggers and all kinds of things in place. You know, all that stuff has to fire off, and then you get your set of ACID transaction-based um, updates done. Trying to replicate that across multiple servers is hard, but if all you're saying is, Hey, this row over here that has Michael Outlaw at age 21, you know, update him to age 22 now. Oh, now, <laughs> now it, instead of, instead of running an update statement, you're just saying, Hey, this record over here should have value 22 for the age, right? Now, one of the things that was interesting about it is when I, I don't know if you guys caught this when you're reading it, it didn't necessarily use the primary keys. It had its own way of finding those rows, right? I don't know if it was some sort of hash base type thing, but but they said that they kind of avoid using primary keys because it may not make it unique enough across the systems, which was kind of interesting. Oh, I thought it was that, maybe I remember that wrong. I thought it was saying that like in cases where there isn't a primary key, then it used the combination of those, of all the columns. It, but if there was that, a primary key, then it used the primary key, I thought. I don't know that it went into a ton of detail. It said that it had its own way of uniquely identifying rows, which which was pretty interesting. And and uh, the book just slightly touched on this. This is one of those things that like the the individual uh, implementations would be their own book. Um, right. And I've seen this in SQL Server where you would enable it specifically for a table. You would say, "I want to turn on CDC." Like it literally had a proc name, and what that would do is it would go and actually create a separate table in a separate database that would track the changes. And what it would do is um, basically kind of um, publish these kind of abstractions for what's changing from moment to moment. So it's like a history table, but instead of, uh, you know, tracking like the whole state of the table, it basically just tracks the changes between each at a kind of a, this intermediary language. But I mean, you're, you're both are kind of like talking about this in like a glowing kind of review, you know, but you could see where like the right ahead log shipping would be more performant because, you know, like take the example of the triggers and everything that you mentioned, Alan, where it was like, okay, you know, you might have to, to, you might want all that to be replayed. And in the case of the right ahead log shipping, it's just like, here's the end state. Just do that. Go right. to there, like skip to the end and you're done. Right. But it's, it's reliant upon physical storage specs and stuff, which is, I mean, yeah, none of them are perfect. Right. Like to your point. Well, I mean, that's kind of like knowing the, the internals of the storage is like really that that's the meat and potatoes of any kind of database system, right? Like you expect that it's going to know that part of it. And that's why you, uh, you know, invested time and money into it. Right. But like I said, the upgrades, the upgrades become a problem as they change their, their stuff. Like there's, there's definitely ups and downs. Now, one of the things that's interesting about the change data capture though is, um, Jay-Z mentioned Debezium. If you haven't heard of that, like there's a very popular way to get change data capture out of systems like Postgres or SQL Server and all that. Pipe it into Kafka so that you have those change sets. And I think this sort of brings us into this next one, which is the trigger based replication. I'd never heard of this one. Yeah, it's all, it's almost like um. I, so you've probably done it before, kind of manually, and and the idea is um here that you can on demand create a backup or a, a replica, 
And, uh, for example, you might have an application that just copies all the data from the database into local memory, does this thing, and then maybe at some point it does later. Another example would be if you just kind of did a backup, like you did a one-time backup and like loaded on a dev machine or something like that. And those are examples where like you are making a replica, but just done very manually. And it doesn't have any sort of automated process for keeping things in sync. But the book just wanted to call out like, hey, this is kind of a fourth type. It's not like the others. It's not really a process for keeping things uh, in sync uh, other than just kind of like for one off little things. It comes in handy sometimes. Yeah, it's you doing it, um, right? Like it's you creating some sort of custom way to to create your replicas, which gives you flexibility, right, is really all it does. Well, what's our uh, – let's, let's check the temperature here. What's our, our feeling on triggers? We, we talking about this fourth way, or are we talking about database triggers? Database triggers. I can't hate them. I, I like. I'm familiar with the downsides, but I just can't get offended when I see them. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of in the same boat. I mean, everything has their uses. Uh, in general, I've over the years drifted away from having all the business logic in a database. Which, if you had asked me, you know, ten years ago, five years ago, I probably would have been like, "Yeah, keep it in the database. It's easier." But um, as I've worked on more distributed things, uh, I definitely would gravitate away from triggers because those are usually enforcing some sort of logic there. But yeah, they have their place. I mean, they wouldn't exist if they didn't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of similar, you know, kind of scenario or opinion. Like they do, they do kind of hide some details if you aren't familiar you know depending on what your familiarity is with the database and especially like you know what you're using for source control for that database uh, it could definitely be abstract you know hidden away from you uh, if you don't have it uh, have that database in some kind of source control where you can see all that functionality but yeah there's definitely like you know i'm thinking of um where what's it called in SQL server where you could have like the version history, like row version on the, on the table and on a row. Right. But I forget what they call it. Um, where you can have that history temporal, temporal, temporal tables. tables. There you go. Temporal Thank you. Tables. Um, so, so with a temporal table, you know, you change a value of a row, but really behind the scenes, you know, SQL Server is keeping all of those changes. So if you needed to see it, you can. And in Postgres, that doesn't exist. And the, you know, kind of workaround way of doing it instead with Postgres is to use triggers. Well, I mean, that's the way it was done in SQL Server for years and years before temporal tables became a, a thing, right? Is you, yeah. you would throw a trigger on it after after insert, after update, whatever. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, again, I, I can't hate them. I'm with Jay-Z. It, they have their place. I, I, If there were other options available, I would probably gravitate towards those other options if they made sense. This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Educative.io offers hands-on courses with live developer environments, all within a browser-based environment with no setup required. With Educative.io, you can learn faster using their text-based courses instead of videos. Focus on the parts you're interested in and skim through the parts you're not. Yes, yeah, so um, I've mentioned some of the courses that I've really enjoyed, particularly Grokking the System uh, Design Interview. 
Well, I was just on Educative Now, and I noticed they've got a section on on free courses, which is awesome. You should go check that out because it gives you a really good chance to see what they're like. And they've got some really good ones. In fact, I noticed there's one called uh, Grokking. I actually just closed it. Dang it. <laughs> Grokking the, uh, the Advanced System Design Interview, which is a follow-up course to the one that I like so much. And it's free right now. Mm. So make sure you go check that out. Well, check this out. It has... Uh, course, the course contents includes gigantic chapters, like meaning multi-module chapters on things like, oh, Dynamo, Cassandra, Kafka. And just scrolling through there, I noticed that they, each one of those has a module on replication and data partitioning. I, I clicked into Kafka, how to design a distributed messaging system. It's a whole gigantic section uh, just on how you would write Kafka and how Kafka works, including the role of Zookeeper. I'm just going to click on here. Oh, there you go. I got to take it. <laughs> yeah. And it's got, uh, yeah, information on how Kafka works underneath and stuff. And it's just really good. And so this is one of the free courses right now. Uh, this access is going to expire probably by the time this airs. So that's unfortunate for, uh, for you, but, uh, it's worth, uh, checking out because it looks like they're going to be doing these kind of, uh, they're just doing all sorts of cool stuff. So you definitely got to go check it out. And so like, I, I know we've talked about before that, um, you know, with the tech, we mentioned that the text-based courses and, you know, versus watching videos to, to learn something and like how important it is that you could just like easily skim through the parts that you want. But it's also important to like, mention like it, that's in an interactive environment too. So you can be doing coding exercises in that course. Uh, you know, there's like a playground that where you can actually, actually work in, uh, you know, like let's say you're taking a Python course, you could actually be writing Python there in your browser all within that part of the course, you know, and again, focus on the parts that you want. And there's, they're always adding so much great content. There's a whole new one now, called DevOps for Developers. And it's a path, uh, uh, you know, a collection of, of courses that's curate, cur- yeah, well, that's easy for me to say, but if only there was a, a, a course on how to speak, I would be able to say that. So, <laughs> but it's a collection, how's that, of, of courses that's focused on using DevOps that includes, uh, you know, things like Docker for Developers, Kubernetes, a practical guide to Kubernetes using Jenkins in, uh, in Kubernetes. So, um, you know, there's other examples, like there's a coding career handbook, which goes over, uh, the non coding parts of being a successful engineer. Uh, there's decoding the decode, the coding interview, which, you know, there's, there's a whole great series like Joe mentioned of, uh, you know, just trying to be successful at the interview type courses and, and decode the coding interview is another one. So be sure to check out their best selling, uh, grok, grokking the interview prep series with courses like grokking the system design interview and grokking the coding interview. The newest edition grokking the machine learning interview actually focuses on the system de- design. That's the system design side of machine learning by helping you design real machine learning systems, such as an ad prediction system. It's the only course of its kind on the internet. Yeah. So go ahead and visit educative.io slash coding blocks to get an additional 10% off an educative un- unlimited annual subscription. You'll have unlimited access to their entire course catalog. And it's a big one. 
but hurry because these deals don't run that often. That's educative.io slash coding blocks to start your subscription today. Did we, are we done? What what happened? We, we, we we wrapped up. Yeah. So, uh, we did. Thank you for noticing. And, uh, (laughs) yeah, we'll have some links to the resources. We like obviously, uh, a copy of this book designing data intensive applications by Martin Kleppman. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and, uh, yeah, with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah, baby. All right. So it looks like I'm going first. So uh, this is a tip that I stole from Redcon. Thank you, Redcon. And he filled this out on our uh, tip hotline, which is a cb.show slash tips. And, uh, yeah, they'll take you to a form. We can, you can enter tips like this so that when I can't think of something, I can go steal it. Wow. Thank you, Redcon. <laughs> and uh, what this is is a link to CSS generators on Smashing Magazine. And what it means by CSS generators are basically uh, it's a list of tools that you can use to interact with like a human, drag around, make things look like you want, and then uh, grab the CSS for it. So you don't have to kind of tweak the numbers in CSS to get what you want. So the first example is a, like a CSS border uh, generator, uh, border radius generator, rather. And so what it lets you do is it gives you a really nice way where you can drag a couple things around until you get a cool shape that you want. So, for example, maybe I'll make a circle here. Or maybe I'll try to make an egg. And when it's done, I hit copy. And now I've got that shape that I can go and take and drop in. Um, they've got tools like that for Bezier curves. If you want to make cool curves on your website and CSS uh, gradients. Example, um, just different color palettes. So, I've, there's a whole thing on color theory and kind of finding colors that are uh, distinct from each other in order to, like, you know, differentiate you have to take into account like accessibility and stuff, which is also another great episode we should do. Uh, and so this is just a, a really big list of tools that you can use to do all sorts of really cool stuff. If you're working on front end type code. And so, uh, yeah, a lot of them deal with the gradients too, which is, it's just kind of fun to be able to kind of click around and like come up with something that you've never seen before that you never would have thought to go out and explicitly make, but you drag some things around, uh, you had a little bit of fun and now you've got a complex, CSS uh, selector for something. So, yeah, it's cool. And now I'm doing front work, front end work again. What's up? Uh, <laughs> it's really nice. <laughs> oh, here's one more I got to talk about. So a clip path generator. So you can take an image, upload it. And uh, let's say you want to um, just do a triangle. So the triangle would, for example, only it would mask everything outside the triangle. So you only see the part of the image that's in the triangle. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I want six points. So let's do a hexagon and let's take it in. So there we go. I made a little Pac-Man. So now I've got a, a mask shape over an image that I can just copy and paste right here. And now I'm obscuring the parts of the image that I don't want to see. And uh, yeah, it's got all sorts of cool like arrows and just different shapes and things. And you can just tweak those little points around an image until it's something that maybe looks like your logo or looks like something you want to emphasize on that page. And then boom, done. Didn't have to tweak the numbers, didn't have to refresh, nothing. Very so cool. thank you. Well, that's interesting. It reminds me of a, um, a tip that uh, I had back, and I'm trying to find the episode number four. I found the episode, but I uh, it was back before we would put the episode numbers in there, so I don't remember, but it, it goes back to um, 2018. There was this uh, link that we shared for, uh, free code camp about 
you know, this cool, uh, bookmarklet that you could use to debug your CSS that I still use to this day where like, you know, I, I just have it saved and I, I click that and, uh, you know, it, it puts borders around all of the different elements. So you can see like, Hey, this span is going here and this div is there. And like, why aren't these things lining up? And then you can like see it. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, you reminded me of that. I'll, I'll include a link to that in the, uh, in the show notes just to, uh, make that easy for others. But, um, yeah. So for my tip of the week, um, I, I, I saved this tip, uh, a few, several weeks back and I don't remember the specific use case that I had for it at the time, but I basically wanted an easy way from the command line to visualize a, um, directory tree in Ubuntu. And, it's kind of a hassle if you're just using like LS to like see all the files and everything in the structure and whatnot. But there is a package or command called tree. You can app install tree. And when you run it, you can get a very pretty graphical view of a, whatever directory you happen to point it at. And of course there's like, you know, parameters that you can be like, Hey, filter out these files or don't go recursive or whatever. Uh, but yeah, super, super convenient command for being able to like see your directory tree for whatever, wherever you are. So, um, Man, I love that tip. I actually use that and I never even thought about that as a tip and it is a beautiful command. Isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'll include uh, a link to the documentation for it and, you know, uh, the app install command. Very cool. All right, so I struggle to come up with tips on this one. I feel like I haven't been doing anything useful of late, um, which is really frustrating. And Outlaw actually reminded me of one that I had brought up on a on a chat channel the other day. So I've uh, been doing some Kotlin, and there was something that was really frustrating is I had went to set up a variable up above, right? So let's say var my var, right? But I wasn't going to initialize that thing until I was inside a try block because I actually needed to go to an external service to get the thing to set into this, right? So I wanted that to be in a try block. So in case the service failed, I would know. Well, I kept getting compilers and Kotlin saying, um, you need to initialize this variable. And I'm like, yo, I did. It's in the try block. You know, look at it. It's, it's done. So, what it turns out is Kotlin, when when the compiler goes through, it's not aware of the things in that try block being something that's initializing, right? Because when I go to use it later outside that try block, it thinks it hasn't been initialized. So there's a really nifty way in Kotlin to where you can initialize a variable by setting it to the try block, which was really weird syntax for me. So I could say var my var um, equal and then try open curly brace, put my code inside. And if, you, if you're not familiar with Kotlin, you don't have to put a return statement inside something. Just whatever the last statement that I executed that had some, some output or some sort of value will get assigned back to the variable for the try block. So I was able to do what I needed to do, which was keep that thing in the try block and initialize the variable that way. Have a link to the stack overflow that kind of shows you exactly what's going on there. And it worked out wonderfully. It was a, like I said, odd syntax, but kind of cool. 
I found it. It is episode 81. Golly, man. That's been a minute. <laughs> 80 episodes ago at two weeks per episode. Yeah, 160 weeks ago. That's, that's been a minute. Well, I, like I said, it was 2018. So so just over uh, three, well, years. How, three years ago. Yeah, because it yeah. was May 13th of 2018. Crazy. So yeah, it's Crazy. been a minute. Man. All right. So this other one, man, I searched on our site to see if we'd mentioned it, and I'm actually shocked that we haven't. So there is a product called HashiCorp Vault. It's actually called Vault. It's made by the company HashiCorp. And this thing's amazing. Like I've been reading on it because if you are, if you're writing an application, right? It's going to come up at some point where you store secrets or where you manage keys or where you do things like that, right? If you're in the cloud, you can totally use Azure Key Vault, right? Or you can use um, AWS's um, key management services and things like that. And that's all fine and dandy. But what if you have an application that you're not running in Azure, you're not running in AWS, or or what if you don't want to use their managed services for it? HashiCorp Vault is actually a really good solution. So this thing is really cool. Basically, it is this thing that allows you to to manage your secrets, um, put uh, put sensitive information into this thing. Um, it, it will handle encryption and all kinds of other things. And what's really cool is it's 100% API-based, meaning all your interactions with it are through an API. And it can even handle authentication for you. So like one of the things that's really cool is let's say that you are writing your application in Azure or AWS or something like that. And you need to authenticate to the vault to un to unseal a secret or something like that. You can actually use the um the uh, uh the credential services from AWS, Azure, Google, Okta, whatever, with token based type things to go get that stuff, unseal what you need in the vault, and then provide that to your application. So there's tons of use cases for this thing. It's I believe it's free. It's open source. Um, you can use it in a regular application. It'll scale out on their main page here on uh, hashicorp.com slash product slash vault. They even have a use case, this vault case study that says using vault to securely handle 100 trillion transactions for Adobe. So basically Adobe uses this thing um, for all the, for basically logging in and handling secrets and all that, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, this thing scales and it does all kinds of cool stuff. So if you are storing anything in your application that is sensitive, if you're not doing it in the proper way, it, you should probably be thinking about that. And this is probably a good thing to jump on and take a look at. The cool thing about it too, like there's some capabilities that like I've heard about and we haven't even like really had a chance to explore in like, you know, the day to day work, but like, do you remember secret server? Oh yeah. Right. Where like a uh, secret server was a product where you put all your passwords in there and then, you know, applications could reach out to, it was very similar applications mm-hmm. could reach out to secret server to get the passwords, but they don't really, they never know it. And you could restrict which people can even see the passwords or change the passwords. So, you know, HashiCorp vault was very similar to that. And the reason why, 
you know, secret server came up was like one of its big um, claims to fame was like when it came to time to roll credentials, Mm -hmm. then you're just doing it there and those credentials can filter out. And there's like other uh, thing, other services that were similar to secret server. I think it wasn't Cyberduck, I think was another one. Um, I know LastPass also has an enterprise type thing as well. Yeah, but I don't know that that's API based though for like applications. I think that's for like, you know, enterprise in terms of like me as administrator being able to allow you as one of my employees access to the Maybe. server, but you, yeah. you can't, you don't necessarily have, you don't know what the credential is. Yeah. But vault also has similar capabilities from what I understand about like how it can do credential rolling and specifically it has like dynamic secrets that can be created, but it also has this concept of like um, revoking secrets. So it can create time-based secrets that can, that can be, you know, revoked. The dynamic secrets, by the way, are really cool because what you're talking about there, just so people understand is this, if your application needs to get access to some AWS service, right? For instance, it can request temporary credentials to go access that service, HashiCorp Vault will actually handle generating those credentials, those IAM credentials for you, giving you back the stuff. You can use this thing, but it may only be alive for like five minutes, right? And so when you go back to use it again, it'll be like, no, this thing's dead. So yeah, it's got that. And and another thing that's really important here that that probably if you haven't been in this space, you don't think about, it audits everything. So if you unseal a secret, it has an audit trail of it. If you create a new secret, it has an audit trail, creating dynamics, whatever. So so everything that happens is logged. So if you're dealing with things like HIPAA compliance or any kind of access controls to where you need to be able to show that, you know, steps A, B, and C were followed, this thing has that baked in for you. So every time you're doing something, it's it's tracked and logged. So um pretty powerful piece of software that's free right so yeah i i definitely would like to understand it and you know more you know take more better use uh advantage of it so it's pretty cool hey we just we just figured out how to get our streaming thing working again so you know i don't know hey yeah that's right. okay well i won't i won't beg for too much and this is why i mean this is why being a developer is hard and i wanted to be a monk you know, but I never, I never got the chance. Oh, <laughs> come on, Joe. Come on, Joe. Okay. Let me put Good it comment. in perspective. I don't know. Let me put it in perspective for you. You remember uh, Monty Python's quest for the Holy Grail? Yep. You remember the monks walking around with the things going, chance, chance. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay yeah it took me a second <laughs> yeah yeah they you know it was it was a whole to do though i mean they asked why i made a vow of silence but i couldn't say <laughs> so uh thank you alec for that uh last uh, final closing joke as we round out yeah, episode one six zero there we are it's in the books finally an divisible by two. number we finally yeah. got to an even number yeah uh, who knew it would take this long? Um, yeah, goofy. 
<laughs> so, uh, as I said before, uh, if, in case if like, you know, a friend turned you on to, to like, you know, Hey, here's this link, check out this show uh, or whatever. And if you're not already subscribed, um, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or probably wherever you like to find a podcast. We did get an email in this week. I think it was, uh, um, the listener was using like the Google podcast app. So wherever you like to find it, we're probably there. And if we're not, uh, let us know. We will um, take care of that issue. We have a pretty good SLA for for issues. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, but yeah, definitely within the next two years, we will get to that. Yep. And, uh, you know, as I asked before, if you haven't left us a review, I, I can't stress enough. We really do appreciate it. Um, you know, we appreciate it if you take the time out of your day to uh, leave us that feedback. And it does, uh, you know, put a smile on our face to read some of the stories. And, um, yeah, some of the stories are just amazing that we read, that we hear from, uh, listeners that, you know, the impact that this show has had on them. So, um, you know, we greatly appreciate hearing it. And, uh, if you would like to leave, uh, your feedback, you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Hey, and while you're up there, we do have copious show notes. So check those out. Um, we do have, and hopefully some discussion on this one, right? Like, so, uh, codingblocks.net slash episode 160. Uh, leave a comment and uh, enter yourself for a chance to win this fantastic one of our favorite books. Yeah, and make sure to follow us on Twitter. Now, we don't actually tweet a lot, but we do retweet. So, we if do. you are tweeting anything interesting, you know, and if, you know, just let us know or we'll, we'll follow you back and uh, we'll watch out for that stuff and try to share that stuff out. Uh, and also, you can go to Kungos.net and find our, you know, TikTok and all that other stuff at the top of the page. <laughs> yeah, I should our probably go grab second. that name before. <laughs> our 15-second videos. Yeah. I think you checked on TikTok once. We It was already taken. Dang it. I think. I may be wrong. Maybe it might have been Instagram or any other thing that we haven't tried. Yeah. 